0: I'm going to ask you actually to back up from the book of Genesis uh, for this series as we started. I'm going to ask you to turn to the table of contents of your Bible. Not as inspired, in fact, not inspired at all as the rest of the Bible, but it's where we're going to start and where we're going to be. So turn to the table of contents of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair rack right below you. Uh, Grab that and pull that out and turn to the table of contents. And we're going to get into a new uh, sermon series this morning the story of scripture, God with us so that we can be with him. Uh, And I'm excited about this series. Let me tell you a little bit how it came about. Uh, Last summer, Pastor Brian and his family went as they do uh, often, I think almost every summer, I went to Camp of the Woods Which some of you have been to. It's a camp in upstate New York, a Christian campground that each week they have all kinds of events and you know fun stuff. And then they bring in a speaker every year that kind of serves that week and shares in the morning services. And last year for Pastor Brian's week, they brought in Dr. Mark Yarborough, who's the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he did a week on the overview of Scripture on a class he teaches at Dallas Theological called The Story of Scripture and Pastor Brian came back and said, you know, this this 5 days that, that he did on the scripture, he's like we were with they usually go with some friends of theirs who aren't don't attend church very often and he said they got so much out of just having a big picture of scripture presented them. He said, but Pastor Brian said, myself and Lori, he also got a lot out of just being reminded of what the big picture and the big story of scripture is. And so at the end of that last summer, we said, you know, we got to find a way and a time in our church calendar to work this in. So we thought the Sunday after Easter, uh, we're going to start a new series, a new eight-week series, and we're just going to walk through Big, high-altitude view of what's the story that Scripture is telling. We did this uh, a while back, maybe 10 years back, in a series called Between the Trees. And we actually took from January to December to tell the story that Scripture tells from Genesis to Revelation, and we still missed a lot. So to try and do this in eight weeks, we're not going to hit every book of the Bible. We are trying to say, okay, what is the big story that scripture is telling? In some ways, these weeks are going to feel a little bit like teaching for some of you. And some of you are going to love that. You're going to feel like I'm in a class and I love that. And some of you are going to hate that. Um, But we're just, we're doing this for eight weeks. And some of you might say, well, why don't you do this on a class on Wednesday night? Or do this on a class on Sunday morning at a different time? Because if I do that, 30 of you are going to show up. And we think this is important enough that we want to take time with the whole church to say every one of us needs to understand the whole story of scripture. And so we're going to take some time in these next eight weeks to kind of lay that out, to kind of give that big picture view. And so that when you come out of this, you are either refreshed, renewed, understand it anew, or uh, maybe understand it for the first time, how the scripture kind of comes together and what's the story that, It tells. When I say story, I don't mean it in the way that sometimes we use the word story. Like, I'm going to tell you a story, like a fish story, like I've made it up. Obviously, I don't mean that. What I mean, story, the story that God's telling, is there's a beginning, a middle, an end. It's a single narrative that has a large single idea that ties it all together. And we believe, I believe, that's what's in the scriptures. Um, You've got many writers, but one author of this book many books that are in it but really one book that's telling one story and so we're going to spend some time we're going to talk about that and uh, some of it may be new to you some of it's going to be a refresher but at the end of it we're all hopefully going to be on the same page and understand what it is God is trying to tell us through this book that he's given to us that we call the Bible or the scriptures, okay? That's kind of where we are. And here's why the need for this. How many of you ever been in a corn maze? Some of you, how many of you have been lost in a corn maze? Come on, be honest, yeah. Corn maze, any of you ever been to Davis Farmland? That one out in Sterling, right? That's one of the bigger ones, I think, in our area, Davis Farmland's corn mazes. Here's one from Davis Farmland that they did that, not that one, the actual, there it is. The corn maze, right? There's one of the ones that uh, they've did out there. I mean, pretty intricate. Uh, Apparently, these, I'm told, these tractors can be like programmed to do these designs in there. Here's another design that Davis Farmland did. Pretty, uh, Pretty cool, pretty intricate there. But when you're in a corn maze, what do you see? Not a trick question. You're looking at corn. Right? You're looking at six to eight foot corn stalks, right? They're towering over you. And so corn maze people, what they realized is a lot of people are getting lost in our corn maze and we need to give them some help. So they built these platform type things in the middle of their corn maze that allow you to kind of go up over and kind of see where you're at and be able to see, okay, here's where I'm at, here's where I need to go, now I can go back down into the corn and try and get to where I need to go. That's a little bit what I want to do with you on Sunday mornings. I want, you, I want, to, I want to step up on the platform, and I want to kind of look, okay, what is the largest story? What is going on that, um, that we can get kind of a higher view of it and then when you go back into kind of the, the, the nitty-gritty or the verse-by-verse or the chapters of the Bible, you have a picture of where it fits in the larger story. And this is important. It's important to keep that big picture in mind, to know what God is doing in that big picture. And so we're going to do that. Some of the stuff that we're going to use on Sunday mornings comes from uh, Dr. Mark Yarborough. His course is available for free online. Dallas Theological Seminary makes that available for free. So it's called The Story of Scripture. So we're pulling a few things from him. Um, But if you really want to go in depth... Uh, and spend more time on it, uh, you can go to the DTS website and see a lot of this for free and go even more in depth. So let me start with this. The Bible is 66 books, 1,189 chapters, and one story. 1,189 chapters. So if you want a challenge, if you want to go through the entire Bible between now and when we finish this series in eight weeks, can you do the math real quick? 21 chapters a day. Um, So if you want a challenge, there you go. You can listen to it. You can listen to it at like double speed. And um, I, I think that's okay. I don't know if God has a problem with that. You're allowed to listen to it. And, and you can get through 21 chapters a day and just listen to the overview of the big story. Uh, but 1,189 chapters, but one single story. And so we're going to talk about what that story is. But what I want, what I want to do first is I want you to learn the overall structure together. Of the way the Bible is organized. So you're in that table of contents, and I want to help you give you away. This is one of the things actually Dr. Yarborough does that I'm gonna whiff right from him because I think it's so helpful. And so here's what we're gonna do Eric's coming up, he's gonna give us a quick beat, and I want you to clap along with the beat that he gives us, okay? I'm gonna share some numbers with you. Here's some numbers, clap along. This is not the winning lottery numbers tonight, at least to my knowledge not my locker combination, but they're important numbers and we're gonna learn them together, okay, ready? I'm gonna say them first and you're gonna repeat them, okay? 512-5512. 512-5512. one, one. one. 512 five, five, 12. Four one twenty one Alright, you got it. You got it down? Give yourselves a hand. You did great. You're gonna do that several more times. During this series, you're going to do that several more times because I want you to remember this and here's what we're going to, here's, here's what we're telling, here's what we're doing. I want you to know what it is. Some of you may have already figured it out. But if you've got your table of contents of scripture, you'll be able to see. The five, first five, so 5:12, 5, 5:5:12 12, 5, 5, 12 is what we often call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, or the Hebrew Bible. That's what we're talking about, how it's organized. In the first five, there's the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. There's several names. They're sometimes referred to, I love the, the, my bad handwriting now. You can see it huge, wonderful. Um, sometimes uh, it's referred to as the Pentateuch. Uh, five books. Sometimes it's referred to as the Torah, which basically means the law, or sometimes they're referred to simply as the books of Moses. The five books of Moses, having been written by Moses, except for the very last part of Deuteronomy, which is about Moses' death and he could not have written. But the rest of it written by Moses. So Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the first five. That's the first five books that we have. The next 12 are we'd call history or, but uh, not or, and, I'm going to call it history and theology. Because it is history, and these books, if you're familiar with it, are you looking at the table of contents? Joshua judges Ruth, right? And then all the first and seconds, right? First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second chronicles. And, and then you've got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these are historical books. They're what's going on with God's people and his relationship with his people of Israel. And they're basically moving the story forward chronologically just like you would normally expect, and that's happening in those history and theology books. The next five, uh, I'm going to call, you call it poetry, or sometimes called wisdom literature, poetry or wisdom literature, and so you've got, uh, this is full of certainly poems, but also prayers, and songs, so you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, you got Job and Ecclesiastes. And these are the five that are in there. Uh, some of you that have a trouble with the history part, maybe you're an artist and you, you lean more, you love the poetry, the prayer, the Psalms, and that part. And thank God that he put that genre in there for you. Um, and that's, that's a blessing. The next five, we're gonna call the major... Profits. That's a terrible M. Major profits. And that might not surprise you that the last 12 are then what? Minor profits. And why are they minor? Because they haven't made it to the major leagues yet. They're waiting to be drafted. No. That's not why they're minor. They're minor simply because they're shorter. They're just shorter. There's 12 minor prophets. Some of them are just one chapter long. They're not even a chapter, like that's it, just one page. They're just, they're just a chapter. Some of them are two or three chapters, um, but they're shorter. Major prophets uh, are longer. Their messages are no less important. They're no less poignant. Um, they're just simply a way for us to categorize it as shorter. Now, here's something that's important for us to understand that sometimes gets missed when you're looking at this larger picture of Scripture. And that's this. I want you to think about this. Take these 5, 5, 12, this last part. And what's important to understand is these actually need to be moved into here in your mind chronologically. And sometimes we can miss that Fact and miss that understanding. Because you can come to this book and you think, well, I know how books work, right? You've been you've been using books all your life. Well, I know how books work. You start at the beginning, you go to the end, and everything in between is moving the story forward. Except when you come to this part of the Bible, this is not moving the story forward chronologically. These actually are what happens in here. It's more like God giving, like taking a sidestep out and saying, here's what's going on in the life of the prophets during this time. Here's what my prophets were saying during this time. Or here's the prayers that David was praying during this time. That all goes back in here. So when you come to the end of uh, Esther, you really come to the end of the chronological history there, or you're coming to the end of the books that have that chronological history, and then you're coming to all of what's going on in the prophets' lives and poetry and kings, the, all of what's going on right here. So, all those books get dropped in there, and that's an important uh, distinction, an important understanding for us to have. So, that's 512, 5512. Say it again. Okay, and the next numbers were hey, that's pretty good. I didn't even have them on the screen. You guys had them. Uh, So you figured out how how this is going by now, right? What is the four? Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to come to that. The life, death, uh, birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's what these uh, account for. And why do we have four of them? We'll talk about that. Um, But there's four Gospels there. One, some of you, what is it? Acts. Uh, we're going to call that history and theology again. It's going, what happens in the early church? What happens when, the, when the, after Jesus ascends into heaven and his followers are then left to do ministry and to go about his great commission? What does that look like? We have a book of history, but it's also theology. Because as we look at what God chose to show us in this historical time, it teaches us about who God is and who we are. Twenty-one. Anyone have a guess? What is that? Epistles, epistles or letters? And the first service didn't like my joke that the epistles are not the wives of the apostles, but that um, the letters. All right. Um, so sometimes they're letters to an individual, like the letter Paul writes to Timothy. Sometimes they're letters to an individual church, like the letter Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And then sometimes they're letters to a general area that is meant to be circulated among Christians, like the letter James writes. And he writes it to a group of churches, and it's meant to be circulated. But all the letters contain basically two things. They contain something we might call orthodoxy, which is right belief, how you should believe and what you believe. And then they contain something called orthopraxy, which is how you practice your beliefs, right practice or right actions. And once you know that and you read through some of these letters, you can be like, oh, I see what's going on there. Well, you can read through the letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and you will very clearly see that the first three chapters are orthodoxy. The first three chapters are all about what we believe about God, who God is, what God has done. It's three chapters, very much all orthodoxy. As soon as you hit chapter four, you see a switch to orthopraxy. Now, because of all these things we believe about God, this is how you're going to live. This is how it should play out in life. This is how you should live your life. And it's a very big switch to orthopraxy. And this is the way that... Our lives also work. What do we believe about God? And then how does that inform the way that we live? And the last book is what? Well, I heard different words. What are you calling it? We'll call it prophecy, uh, apocalyptic, literature is sometimes it's called revelation. I heard most people just say revelation. We don't know what it's called. We're just, we're just going to call it revelation. Uh, it is that it's, it's the book of revelation. Uh, I'll call it prophecy. Uh, we can call it apocalyptic is a word that's used because it's highly symbolic. Um, it's, but it is a prophecy. It's about, here's what's going to happen in the future. And here's what's coming down the road. And the apostle um john kind of sharing that so this is the the new testament so 4 1, 1 and that is the largest structure that we're going to be using throughout our time together that this is the this is the picture this is the way your scriptures are organized this is the Bible that you have in your hand that we're looking at. And it really is telling this story that we talked about a few weeks ago that it starts with it starts out with God, God and man together, and the whole rest of the story is how do we get God and man back together? How do we get humanity back with God? And you can't understand the entire story of the Bible without understanding um, the larger picture of it. So I want to take the last few minutes we have together and I want to zoom. So we, we zoomed out. Is that, is that this? This is zooming out, right? We zoomed out. <laughs> now I want to zoom in. <laughs> now I want to zoom in on something. So we zoomed out. We're going to do this each week. We're going to take, here's the large picture. Here's the big picture. Here's where we are. Here's where scripture is. And now I want to zoom in on the beginning of the story just for a few minutes. I want to zoom in on Genesis. So now you can turn to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And let me, for the last few minutes we have together, talk about how the story begins. And what happens in the story beginning, in the first three chapters of Genesis, you have the five biggest questions that every person, not simply every religion, every person needs to answer. They're answered. Every person needs to answer the five biggest questions that you can ask, the five biggest questions of life are answered in the first three chapters of the story. The story begins with God and answers life's most important questions. And so we're going to look at that real quickly. The Bible, one thing you need to understand as we get into it, as we start, the primary thing it's trying to do is teach us truths about God, about ourselves, So it's a theology book. It's a book about God, not primarily a science book, though we can have good discussions about science and the Bible, and I think those are definitely appropriate. And when we come to Genesis, sometimes, though, you can only go down, sometimes people get caught only going down those trails, and they lose the whole trail of the bigger picture of what is it saying about God? What is it saying about God? And so you can't miss that because one of the things it says right from the beginning is it talks about origin. Where did we come from? And we can't miss that. One of the biggest questions that every person needs to answer is where did we come from? Why is there something and not nothing? I mean, every person that ever lived has to consider that. Why why is there something and not nothing? Whether you are an atheist or a Christian or a Jewish or Muslim or a Hindu, you need to think about what's the answer to that question? Do I have an answer for it? The Bible gives an answer right in the beginning. In fact, right in the first five words of Scripture. This is how the story starts. In the beginning, God created. So it just takes that right off the table for me. If you're wondering about origin, if you're wondering about why there's something and not nothing, the first five words of scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything you see, it answers the question of origin. In fact, it continues to go on to say, not only did God create it, God created it good. It was good. It was good. In fact, in those first two chapters of Genesis, everything was good, except once God said it's not good. Remember when? Anyone know? Where does God say it's not good? Not good for man to be alone. So God created a companion and then it was very good. That was the end of the sixth day. God said it was very good. So God created and it was good. Second most important question everyone needs to answer is the question of significance. Do we have any real value? Okay, so why? You know, where did we come from? But do we have any value? because this question is there, because we all kind of feel like we have significance. We all kind of feel like we have value, but feeling like you have value and actually having value are really two different questions. Do we have inherent value or are we just like the paper currency of a, of a nation that, you know, that has you know, rampant inflation and that we're only worth what we can buy at the moment? Or do we have some kind of inherent value within us. I think this is something that that everyone struggles with, especially you might struggle with it if you say, well, I don't have a belief system. I'm not a Christian. I don't have any belief system. And yet you have this feeling that I've got, there's gotta be something worth this time I have here. It feels valuable. One author, um, Ernest Becker Uh, who uh, no man of faith uh, I don't think as far as I know in any way he was an anthropologist he won the Pulitzer Prize in the 70s for a book called the denial of death he has a couple quotes he has that really I think kind of bring out this idea that okay he denies that there's a there's a larger picture and story here and yet there's still this feeling of significance that I'm not quite sure what to do with. He says this quote in his book, The Denial of Death. <clears throat> what does it mean to be a self-conscious animal? The idea is ludicrous if, if it is not monstrous. It means to know that one is food for worms. There is the terror to have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression... And with all of this, yet to die. This contrast between feeling like we have value and that not having a belief system that actually supports any real value or inherent value having it. Well, again, the Bible would answer very early on uh, Genesis again, chapter 1. You don't have to go past chapter 1, verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. goes on to say, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right in the beginning, this is, and it's only said, this is only said about humans. It's not said about animals. It's not said about anything else in creation. Only humans are called image bearers. And so, right from the beginning, that you do have value because you are an image bearer of the almighty God. That God created you in his image. Nothing else in creation does it say that God breathed into it. But in order to make man, it says God breathed his breath into humanity. So there is value in that. And every person you see is an image bearer. And why would Jesus come just because he loved you and thought you were special? That would be nice. No. (laughs) Jesus came because you're an image bearer and he cares about the image of God. And you bear the image of God on you. And so Jesus will come and give his life for image bearers. And he came to reconcile you to God because you are an image bearer of God. And God cares about that. And so you have an inherent value in you. And so that's made clear in the first chapter of scripture. Third question, what's the third most important question? Purpose, why are we here? So where did you come from? (laughs) And uh, significance, do you have any value, but why are you here? We all kind of feel this pull too, right? We ask little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are we asking in that moment? Why are you here? What are you going to do? What's your purpose? What are you going to do with your life? We all kind of have this in our eyes that that there has to be some kind of purpose. Why are you here? Rick Warren wrote a book, you know, several years ago called The Purpose-Driven Life, and it sold like bazillions. Why? Because it's just connected with something within us that says, I want a purpose-driven life. I want purpose in my life. God makes it clear from the beginning. Why are we here? Genesis 1.28 And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter two says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So why are we here? Well, according to this passage, to create more humans, more image bearers, to have dominion over creatures, and to work the garden. And so what does that look like? That there, really, I think what often gets missed in this passage is a couple things. One is you were created to rule and have dominion. We'll talk about that in a second. But second thing that often gets missed is meaningful work was present in God as part of creation in the good garden. Okay, as hard as your job might be, whatever that is, work is not part of the curse. Now, a kind of work, work that's not rewarding and brings forth thorns and thistles and it's hard like that, but work itself, meaningful, purposeful work, was part of the good gift of God, not part of the curse, which is why I believe there'll be meaningful and purposeful work in heaven after this life that I think God is gonna continue because he created us for meaningful, purposeful work. But he created you to rule. He created you to have dominion. He actually, that was part of the image bearer, that he wanted to create people who will rule with him. So he gave this creation and said, you rule over this little green and blue sphere the way I rule over everything that's part of the image bearer you you have dominion over it so which is why it should not surprise us that the greatest problems come when the ruling and dominion becomes corrupted the greatest evils in the world come when humans rule in selfish ways whether that's exploiting and not caring for fellow humans or exploiting God's creation into extinction, that we rule in selfish ways and that creates problems because we're taking the gift that God has given to us and using it only for ourselves. God created everything we see in the world and entrusted us and we ought to care about it. As a Christian, we believe God created and thought up the animals and every animal you see. Do we value animals more than human life? No. Nope. Because humans have our image bearers. Animals are not. And that could be a controversial statement in, for some in our world and our society. That human lives do have more value than animal lives in, in our world. But I think you also need to understand as Christians we believe God created everything. So should we value creation more than our greed? To exploit it and abuse it? Yep, we need to take that into account. How do you balance those two? That's ruling and dominion. <laughs> How do you care for God's creation and care for people and their needs and all? That's ruling and dominion. Those are the conversations. That's what you need to distinguish and have and, and, and use wisdom on. God wants you to rule with Him. And so you may have a dollar in your pocket or a hundred thousand in your bank account. You're called to rule and have dominion the way that God would handle that. The way that God would do it. What would God do with this money? You might have a potted plant on your deck or a giant garden in your backyard, tend the garden. What does God want you to do with it? How does God want you to steward this? You have dominion over something, even if it's just your own body. You are called to rule and have dominion and use it in a way that God would have you use it. So that's purpose. Let me move on to the fourth question, pain. Why is there pain in the world? Every worldview needs to answer this question. Why is there pain in the world? If some people say, well, I think people are mostly good. Well, if people are mostly good, then why is there so much pain in the world? And why do I feel so much evil in my own heart? Because I know that in my own heart there's times that I think evil thoughts, and you do too. So why is that there? Why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there death, torture, exploitation? Why do we have 10-year memorials of marathon bombings? Why is there a place called Children's Hospital? Why are these things, why do these things exist in our world? Everybody has to come up with an answer for that question. It's one of the essential questions every worldview needs to answer. The Bible gives an answer for, the, for our worldview in the first three chapters of the scripture, right up front, right in the beginning. And it doesn't give all the information. It gives a kernel and a seed because we're in the beginning of the story. And so Genesis chapter three says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God actually say, now let's just stop there for a second, because I've got a whole lot of questions, and you should have a whole lot of questions. Now, the serpent was in the garden. Wait a second. What is the serpent doing in God's good garden? Was craftier than all the creatures God had made. Wait a second. Why did God make this serpent? And, and then the biggest one, he said, why is the serpent talking? <laughs> this is some of the questions that, that Dr. Yarbo actually brings up. And I actually, I never thought about that last one. And I'm like, yeah, why is the serpent talking? What is going on here? We don't have all the answers, and this is just a kernel and just a seed, and later on in the story, some of these things connect, and especially the books of Ezekiel and Daniel kind of talk back into this situation and say, okay, now I think I know who the serpent is, but in Genesis chapter 3, I have no idea, but God given us a kernel, and he's given us a seed, and he's saying, here's what happened? What happened? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What's going on here? What's going on is an explanation of where this good went bad. Part of the other gift of the image bearer of God was giving the Giving given choice, giving the ability to choose, to choose God or to choose not God, to be in a genuine loving relationship with God by being able to choose to follow him, but being able also to choose not to follow him. And so what's going on here? Where did this pain and all this come in when humanity decided to believe the words of the serpent more than the words of God? to be able to say, yeah, I want to choose what I want instead of following the good that God has laid out for me, the God that created me, the God that made me in his image, the God that gave me this beautiful garden. I'm going to choose what I want over what that God has given to me. And by that, then enters sin and death. And this is played out in the next few chapters of Genesis. So that's Genesis chapter 3, and then there's a curse given. What happens in Genesis chapter 4, if you know, Genesis chapter 4 contains the first murder when Cain kills Abel because he's jealous of him. Genesis chapter 5 contains a genealogy which usually aren't that interesting to us. Just a list of names, like, okay, name, 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 all right, move on. Like, let's get the story moving along. But there's something very interesting about the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Most genealogies are, you know, John fathered James, fathered, 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 begat, 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 begat. But the genealogy in Genesis 5 is very different because every section except one ends in these words, and he died. So-and-so fathered, 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 and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Why is that in there? Because if there was no Genesis chapter 3, there would be no and he died. Death came in, and now death has a major play in creation, and in humanity. Now death hangs over every human. And he died, and he died, and he died. Genesis 6 through 10 is the story of Noah. Sin kind of filled up the earth, and God said, I'm starting over, Um, and we're not going into the weeds of that story, but Noah came out of there, and before the puddles even dry up, Noah's family's a mess. Sin is still in creation. In Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel where humans say, we're gonna make a name for ourselves and build this tower and God uh, slaps that down and says no. And then in Genesis chapter 12, which we'll get to next week, it's the covenant of Abraham and God says, I'm gonna make a name for myself. And the story goes on from there. But this is the problem of pain. This is what Christians, is where we believe pain comes into the world. The final question as we close is this. You have to ask yourself this, every worldview needs to answer, is there any hope? Every worldview needs to, okay, there's pain in the world, it's broken, is there any hope? Every religion ought to have an answer, it's not worth following, what's the hope? Where's the hope? What's the hope that exists? Do we see hope in the beginning of the story? I think in two places we do. One in Genesis 3.15, after God has given out the curses, He says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, or some translations say crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in the very beginning of the story, most scholars will say this is the first messianic prophecy of the Messiah in the Bible. It's just a seed. It's just a kernel. It's not all the information. All it's saying is there's one, because it says he, there's one seed. There's one coming that is going to change this. There's one coming that's going to crush the serpent's head, that's going to be bruised by the serpent, but is eventually going to have victory and crush the serpent's head. It's the first indication in scripture of a Messiah. It's the first uh, little glimpse that Jesus is coming. And there's hope, and, and it's just a kernel, and it's just a seed, but it's enough. If you're reading it, you're going, wait a second, there's something there. What is this saying? There's, 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 a, there's a glimmer of hope that's there, that God's going to send someone to make right what's been wronged. There's one other glimmer of hope, I think, in these first um, 11 chapters of Genesis that I think is there, and that's in Genesis 5, because I said one of them doesn't end with auntie died. And that was a man named Enoch. Enoch's um, passage ends with this. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And we don't know all what that means. I don't know what that looked like, but it gives a glimmer of, wait a second. There's something beyond this world. There's something outside of this physical world, because Enoch doesn't end in death. Enoch's worked with God. And so there's some glimmer of hope that there's something else going on, that God is gonna send a savior and there's life after this life. This is the story that scripture is telling. This is the start of it. This is the beginning. So I I would challenge you, if you're a Christian, know, you know, get re-familiarized with this story. Know the answer to these five questions. If you're not a believer, if you're not I think this morning, my biggest question to me, how do you answer these five questions? Because you should have an answer to those five questions. Where did we come from? Do we have any value? Why are you here? Why is there so much pain in the world? And is there any hope? And do you have good answers? Are they worth giving your life for? Are they worth laying your life on the line for them? Jesus offers, these are the answers that we have in the scriptures, and it's going towards, let me close with this last scripture as our worship team comes. I'll close with this last scripture from Romans chapter 5, the letter to the Romans. It's in that 21, right? Paul writes, for if because of one man's trespass, who's that one man he's talking about? Adam. He's going back to the beginning. He's going back to the beginning of the story. All one story, right? It's all one story. Paul's writing thousands of years later, but he recognizes we're all part of this one story. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, that's what came in in Genesis chapter three, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. There's our purpose. Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the story that's being written. This Bible tells one story, and it's a story of this. We were created to be with God in the garden. We chose in our own sin to go our own way, and it brought separation between us and God. And the whole rest of the story is God making a way that we might be able to be with him again through the seed Jesus Christ who comes and makes a way for us. And so for the next several weeks, here's the story we'll be in. This story of scripture, that God with us so that we might once again be with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, God, we uh, are just stepping into the story and we don't even know what part of the story we're stepping into because we don't know when it ends but we do know we've just got a real small part in a larger story you're telling. Lord, help us to see ourselves as a part of the story that you are telling where it fits in. And Lord, I pray for the person who might've walked in this morning and they're here, but they're not really feeling like their story has any significance not really maybe feeling that their life has any purpose beyond just a few years on this earth. Lord, I pray that you would show each and every one of us, God, the value that we have of who we are, and Lord, that you are, Lord, so interested in redeeming our story and redeeming our lives for your that you have an awesome purpose and it's not even one that can be fulfilled in a few years on this earth but one that carries on through eternity oh God help us to have a greater understanding of what you're doing we get so focused on our little sliver of time Lord would you just help us to just climb that platform just see a little bit of a bigger picture Lord that it's not all about us that there's something more that's going on. But we do get to be a part of the story that you're telling. Speak to us and lead us, Lord. Help us to understand in a greater way what you're doing, that we may play our part well and to bring glory to you through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? I'm gonna, We're going to close in this song of worship. And just before we do, there's two questions. I want to each week give you a couple questions to carry on the conversation uh, throughout the week. And uh, so we'll put a couple, you can put, just put that slide up that has both questions on one slide. If you want to snap a picture and carry on the conversation throughout the week with someone else, um, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, and after that, we'll just sing this song of worship and then we'll close out with our benediction.